You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast featuring some of Indiana's most fascinating men and women whose impact has shaped our state, our communities, and us. Join us as we discuss their imprint on our history. Leaders and Legends is brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated, your local veteran business enterprise specializing in public relations, media relations, public outreach, crisis communications, and digital photography. My name is Robert Bain, Principal of Veteran Strategies, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Mayor Greg Ballard, and Communications Director for the Indiana Republican Party. I'm honored to be your host for our discussion. Thank you for joining us on Leaders and Legends Podcast. Our guest today is entrepreneur Hoosier, University of Southern California graduate, history buff, and one of the true civic leaders of Indianapolis, Jeff Smullyan. Thank you, sir, for joining us. My pleasure. My pleasure, Robert. Well, the the point of the podcast, for those of you who are first-time listeners, is to detail and have discussions with people who are still making a difference and have made a difference in the amazing transformation that Indianapolis has witnessed in the last 50 years. Uh, You're an Indianapolis native. Jeff, talk to us a little bit about where we went to high school, the neighborhood you grew up in, and what was it like to be a kid in Indianapolis? Well, it was such a different time. Um, I grew up with a guy named Steve Crane, who I just happened to talk to a little while ago. Steve came into Emmis in the very beginning. We've been lifelong friends, and we grew up on the northeast side. I grew up at 70th and Dover Road uh, in between Allisonville and Dean, and Dean Road. Um, in those days, Dover just, I think, ran from like 64th to 71st Street. Now I think they've built a division on the other side. But, uh, um, you know, just a quiet neighborhood. Um, you know, we joke, we ride our bikes, and our parents said, be home when it gets dark, and we got home. And, <laughs> the street lights. Yeah, different different world. Um, then went to East uh, John Strange Elementary, Eastwood, on a North Central Family moved uh, when I was about 15 to 85th and Washington Boulevard, but still Washington Township. So I spent my whole life in Washington Township. And you went to North Central, graduated went to from North, North Central, Central, graduated in 65. We've had several North Central grads yeah. on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Mark Miles, yeah. uh, Mitch Daniels, yeah. and uh, Mr. Bart Peterson. Yeah. Did you go? Where, did you intersect with them at all? No, those guys were all younger. Mitch was just a couple years younger. Uh, I think we're all in the North Central Hall of Fame or something. We all get teased <laughs> about that. There's a lot of us in that thing. But uh, We need Kip, too. We're, we're going to start and, that and for Kip, the North Kip's Central a, Hall of Fame. Kip, too, is a big Washington Township guy. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah. So what made you decide to go to the University of Southern California with all these terrific schools here in the Midwest? Uh, that yep. decision, when I was looking through your biography, yep. really struck me struck me you know it was a different time most kids you know if they didn't stay in state they went east Uh, i had a cousin who went there i just thought it would be you know a really neat place to go to school um when i was a kid i always said dad when can we go to california and he said son when i use in the rose bowl and uh, (laughs) i you made the rose bowl and i was a junior at usc at the time it was the only time they made it but i just thought it'd be neat you know it was the 60s and california and all those things and um Went out and thought, well, you know, I'll go for a year or so, and loved it. Um, stayed undergraduate. Uh, was going to get a, a master's in telecom. Actually, uh, going going to go to Stanford and get a master's in telecommunications. Somebody said, well, if you love broadcasting and you want to be an entrepreneur, uh, you should go to law school, study broadcast law. And I have to laugh now because today everybody gets an MBA. Uh, in those days, it was like, man, nobody ever gets an MBA. They just didn't have the sort of they had proliferation them. of they had them, business schools. But it, it was sort of like we had one guy in our law school class. Of, I think we had a law school class of 170 people. And then one guy got a joint MBA, JD. And we said, well, why would you want to waste an extra year doing that? I mean, it sounds so crazy today because today, if you want to run a business, you you know, get an MBA. I've always joked that if I had gotten an MBA, I probably would have understood the concept of risk better and I probably never would have been an entrepreneur. Um, Did but, you ever consider going back to get one? No. Oh, yes. A lot of times. And it was just life got in the way. Um, I thought about doing it at night and then you, you married and have a family and uh, never did it. But um, uh, I, I've always, you know, thought that uh, 
if I had it to do over again, I I would have gotten a, a joint JD MBA because I I thought law school was great. I I was somebody I, I have been in, on inactive status with the state bar for 35, 40 years, whatever it is. And if I had to practice law today, I'd be disbarred on the spot. <laughs> My lawyers, you know, contend I don't even have the patience to listen to them. Um, but it was great training. It taught me how to allocate resources and understand competing needs. And really was it really was, I thought, great training uh, to run a business. Your undergraduate degree is in? History and telecommunications. And what was it about, you know, we're a, we're history buffs here yeah. at the leaders and legends podcast yeah. what was it about history that drew you to it and is there a particular era that you enjoy well it, it's funny i could laugh and i guess i should tell you that i started as a poli sci major and thought poli sci was kind of abstract and boring um i don't know i i've loved american history um love to know why things are the way they are probably more you know study the civil war uh, studied, you know, the New Deal and and um, the, the post-war Europe. Um, so just always loved it. And to me, we talked about it, the intellectual curiosity of knowing why things are, why, and, and you know, the more you see, history repeats itself. And uh, so I've always been fascinated by it. It was a heady time to be in college yes. generally. What was your college experience in terms of in the cocoon or the, the the matrix of what was happening in college campuses throughout the country in the mid to late 60s, early 70s? SC was a unique place because really so much of the college revolution occurred on the West Coast. Berkeley was ground zero. SC was sort of a bastion of um, conservative WASP. Ism really. It's a so private school. Most private don't school. SC. I, I got an alumni award from SC a few years ago, and I joked that if I applied to SC today, they wouldn't even let me get a brochure. They just say, <laughs> "Please don't bother us." We have seventy thousand applicants. They all have straight A's. But in those days, it was it was much more conservative. Uh, I have been known as a more politically liberal person, um, but I think the contrast between. Um, my nature is more conservative in certain areas. And I think it was an interesting contrast. So while I was uh, opposed to the war um, and, and, and felt, you know, had a lot of deeply held feelings, I was, I guess nobody would consider me to be uh, a radical at all. I, I don't think anybody would uh, um, consider my, my politics are more moderate. Um, but, but, you know, being sort of a moderately liberal person at a time when you had really a lot of almost revolutionary thought was interesting. Um, and when did you know, we're, we don't usually date our podcasts. In other yeah. words, say, Hey, here's the date that we're recording this because yeah. we don't broadcast them necessarily right. in the right order or in the same order, sure. but we are sitting here on Friday, November 22nd. Right. Do you remember where you were when? President Kennedy was assassinated. Absolutely. And, and was President Kennedy sort of the wellspring of your political beliefs? I think to an extent, I think his brother Bobby was. Uh, Bobby was very idealistic. Um, um, I would remember I was in high school and somebody said the president is shot. And, I, you know, your, your frame of reference is the president, like the president of our student body, my friend Dave. Oh, my gosh. I mean, it was just it was one of those moments. I, um, I actually, uh, on the day that... Um, Bobby Kennedy was shot was the first vote I ever cast, uh, in the California primary. Um, that's right. Cause you would have been, I, I, you would 21, have been 21, 21 and you would have been out in there in Los Angeles in senior in college. And I remember I actually was right at the end of finals. I had mono. I don't, I got mono. I, I guess you only get it once. And I got it after finals and I was, and I got out and voted and then went back to bed and was watching it when it all happened and saw everything when it happened. We did a podcast recently with Michael Browning, and he was talking about his experience being at Notre Dame when Bobby Kennedy gave his first speech. Right, and they fixed 68 primaries, right? That's exactly right. And yeah. then we've done a podcast with Mike Riley, who talks, who was uh, Bobby Kennedy's campaign director for yeah. Indiana. Yeah. Because perhaps of, of other factors, yeah. maybe time as much as anything— the the impact that Bobby Kennedy had 
on young people, especially yeah. in this country. Yeah. Democrat, obviously, more than Republican, but the impact he had is almost immeasurable. Looking back on that time, what sort of impact do you think he and that electrified candidacy, which I think yeah. is a, I'm a Republican, but we can yeah. admire the other side. I sure. mean, it was a singularly uh, powerful candidacy. What effect did that have on you? Well, I think it was that we we can all do better. We're all in this together. I, I think I just read a book on Birch Bay. I worked for Birch um, when I was in law school. Oh, the Blameyer book? Yeah, read Bob Blameyer. He used to work with Bob Blameyer. read his book. Well, he came on the podcast yeah. with Louis Mayhern and sure. Nancy Pappas to talk about the career of Birch Bay. Yeah. They were terrific. And I worked for Birch when I was in law school. Um, it was a different time. Uh, you know, I still remember... Uh, and it's no secret Evan is a dear friend. Susan has been on this board, on the MS board for 25 years. Um, you know, I can still remember playing softball. Uh, and we'd play with Republicans and we'd all have pizza and, and beer. And um, y- you know, it was a time when you really, you know, just debated ideas. We weren't in this ideological cocoon where all Republicans are good and all Democrats are bad or all Republicans are bad and all Democrats are good. People work together and you compromised. And I thought, you know, the idea was working together. The most remarkable statement, I think, in the whole Bob Blamer book was when Birch Bayh had been a freshman senator and Evan Dirks, or Everett Dirksen walked up to him, Illinois. put his arm around him and said, Birch, I really, I, I love what you do. I love, you know, we're, we're different parties, but I, I want to help you with the reelection. Now, the idea that any Democrat could be helped for reelection by any Republican or vice versa in 2019, in 2019, is just unheard of. Um, it, it was a different time. So I think it was, you know, uh, I thought Bobby Kennedy was basically someone who said, we all can do better. And he was one of those transformational figures. Ronald Reagan was a transformational figure. And people who who said, you know, we're we're all in this together and let's let's make this place better. I, and I think going back, you want to talk about Indianapolis. That's really the spirit of this community. Um, it, it's no secret. Steve Goldsmith and I are very, very close friends. Uh, and we've been blessed with people who, you know, both in, in public life, elected officials and people in the corporate community and the community at large who said, let's make this place better. Let's rope our sleeves. Uh, I always joke Al Hubbard and I are obviously <laughs> in opposite parties, but we get thrown together. And, uh, you know, Al called me and say, I need you to do this. I need a, a, a Democrat to be with me on this. And what we, we laugh is, you know, most of the times we can find uh, solutions. It's not uh, hard if you try hard. It's not a hard if you try hard. I've never met anybody in this country on the far right or the far left or in between who didn't deeply love this country. Uh, and most people, their vision of how to make it better is different. Um, but they, if you start from that premise that uh, I have more Republican friends than Democrat friends probably, but you know, I don't know anybody who doesn't say, I really I love this place, so how do we make it better? You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Indianapolis-based Michelis Corporation, the Crown Plaza Hotel and Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You were at USC and perhaps this isn't the whole reason why you went, but for some absolutely terrific football. Yes, yes, we you, did. You were there for probably the glory years, yes. the John McKay years of USC football. Yes. What was it like to be there at that time? Did you know any of the players of Mike Garrett or O.J. Simpson or the coach or Lynn Swan and that sort of group? And, and how do you deal with living in a state that loves Notre Dame football so much? Well, it's it always, a, it, it, it always a fun experience. Uh, I have a number of Notre Dame friends. Uh, Mr. Browning's one of them. Al Smith's another one. Uh, uh, Bill McGowan and, and, and think of the Curtises. A lot of them. Are, and I happened to be at a breakfast uh, after we lost a couple of years ago, 49 to 14. And they were teasing me, asking me how much fun I had driving down from South Bend at 1 o'clock in the morning after we lost by 35. Um, but it was fun. Um, you know, the McKay era was terrific. I, I can still remember some of McKay's great lines. Uh, 
they lost to Notre Dame 51 to nothing, and they asked him what he told his team after that game, and he said, I, I said, I told the team that there are 850 million people in China who don't even know this game was played. <laughs> so it was a great line. But the, it the was, other one is when they, when he, when Anthony Davis scores all the touchdowns in 74, and yeah. Father Hesburgh goes to McKay, who's an Irish Catholic, and Father Hesburgh goes, Coach, that wasn't very nice. And McKay replies, well, Father, that's what you get for hiring a Presbyterian. That's exactly right. Era Parsegian was a Presbyterian, and McKay was a Catholic, Irish Catholic. <laughs> it, it was funny. I waited tables with Mike Garrett. Um, you know, at a, I was a waiter in a sorority house for a number of years, and Mike waited with us tables with us for a while. Uh, I knew OJ a little bit. OJ was actually in my class, um, and knew and Lynn Swan was later. I think Lynn. I think Lynn played when I was in law school, but um, he'd have been early seventies. Yeah, I think, I think Lynn, Lynn played when I was in law school out there. But uh, and then Lynn, both were athletic directors, and I've been a trustee during both of their eras and have worked with both. Pat um, Hayden, new Pat, new Pat as a trustee. Really didn't know him in school. He was a little later than me, but new Pat uh, from the board of trustees, and then when he was AD. Did you? You certainly, obviously, went to many games. Did you go to the Rose Bowl where USC beat? IU? Oh yeah, I was there. That Do you was talk the, to Mr. Harry Gonzo? Uh, well, I've, I've known Harry, you know, peripherally for years, and uh, um, you know, you you walk down the street and you, now there's the quarterback of the only IU team ever, and Harry doesn't look like he's you know quarterback at these points. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, well, the joke in the family was, and my fam, my father's promised trip to California finally came to fruition when I was at USC. And, of course, the whole family came out. I can't imagine how many members of family and friends we had after that game. But uh, but it was fun. I could, I could remember that game as yesterday. My IU friends say, you know, if only, uh, I think it was Al Gage, had dropped that pass in the end zone. And I said, if he, if he caught the pass in the end zone, you still lose. Doesn't matter. <laughs> was it 14-3? <laughs> 14-3, yeah. So that's what I said. Well, if he caught it, it was 14-10. But, uh, Do you remember another game or two from that era? Oh, yeah. Well, that yeah. you would maybe – think about more than others whether against Notre Dame or some of their battles against Ohio State probably the most memorable was my I think our our junior year because uh, it was for the national championship and it was against UCLA and OJ Simpson ran 64 yards uh to win the game with about five minutes left and that Gary Beban was the yeah, well that, UCLA was, that coach? was Beban or that UCLA was quarterback Beban and um uh, that those were the great. That was probably the single greatest game. There was also a game against Stanford, which w- was probably the single best football game I ever saw, where both teams scored I think four times in the last five minutes. Was Plunkett the? Uh, well, as a matter of fact, Plunkett and Vataha, mm-hmm. um, and Plunkett vowed after that game to come back for his senior year, which they did. They came back. I'll never forget the next year they beat us for the first time in like fourteen years. And he won the Heisman. Uh, yeah, but that was the that was the game which he said I, I'm coming back. Uh, <laughs> we had a kid named and I'm going to say Ron Ayala. Can't believe anybody in Indianapolis is interested in hearing this, but I, I, Ayala kicked a field goal, like a 40 yard field goal at the gun to win the game, and it was one of the, probably the craziest football game I've ever seen. But you know the the, the experiences and a lot of the people we've talked about, we've dwelled a little bit on the college years because yeah. they are so instructive and they're yeah. so influential. Yeah. And especially, quite frankly, with people who've gone to IU yeah. or Indiana colleges and come here. Yeah. But you leave, you leave USC. You come back to Indianapolis. Right. Why not stay out there, or why not go to a bigger city? That was what I always thought. I always wanted to be an entrepreneur and start a radio company. As a matter of fact, that was sort of the thing. If you have a law degree, um, you know, you have credibility if you want to be an entrepreneur. If you just have a master's in telecom. So several people said that, uh, but I always knew what I wanted to do. Uh, my dad talked me into coming back. Um, I didn't want to come back at first um, because I liked California, but he said, no, come back. It'll be easier to start a business here. He had a cousin who had a small radio station and he said, <coughs> excuse me. He said, if you come back, I'll invest in the station. If you'll come back and run it. And while you're waiting to start your company, um, you, you'll, it'll be good. And you'll be home. And, Talk me into it. First six months I was home, I said, what have I done? Um, and then... <laughs> because the Indianapolis of the early 1970s is is what... Not very exciting. And um, and yet I fell in love with it. And, I, you know, now and over the last 40-some years, our biggest businesses have always been in New York or L.A. or Washington or Chicago or San Francisco, Austin. Um, 
but I've never, ever thought of leaving. Um, it's home. I love it. I love being a part of this place, and it's a, it's a nice life. And when you came back to Indianapolis, uh, it was really starting to take off. So it would have been like the mid-70s, yeah. if I'm getting the chronology right. I think they were just getting ready to build Market Square Arena. At uh, 74. really the start of the renaissance of downtown. Uh, and it was a fun place. And um, so, we, you know, learned a lot. Um, it, was, it was a fun time. And did you get a sense at the time with with new leadership, not only in the mayor's office, yeah. but, but in the civic organizations, that, okay, this city's due to take off? No. Absolutely not. I don't think you, number one, you, you're, you're worried about, you know, feeding your family and day-to-day stuff, and you don't really think in broader terms. That's the beauty of getting old like I am now. Now you think in, <laughs> in, in broader terms. But I think at the time it was just you knew things were happening, but you really weren't, you, you weren't, weren't as aware of them uh, on a daily basis. But clearly you had visionary leadership then. You've had it for a long time here that's been very helpful. Do you remember when you first started to get approached to, and you got on the radar of a Bill Hudnut or a David Frick or yeah. or those sorts of folks that that early generation kind of first generation yeah. founding fathers of the people who made Indianapolis different? Well, probably the first station was a small station. We did some civic things. You know, we were always famous for our midday guy, who's David Letterman, um, and and <laughs> you know that was probably more more people want to know about that than anything else. Uh, Rick Cummings, who was really the first or second employee at MS ever, was our production director and then replaced Letterman and then became program director. And I said, someday I'm going to start my own company. And when I do, which was a few years later, I want you to head up programming. And he did and he's had that position for 40 years. Um, I think probably MS was such a skyrocket. Um, you know, in the early 80s, we started at uh, first station went on the air July 1st, uh, July 4th, 81. Um and in, and which in station was that? WNS, which is now Hank FM, 97.1. Um, and, and we went on the air, and, you know, I think the company then bought Minneapolis and then St. Louis and Los Angeles. So it, it got a lot of national notoriety, especially in the mid-'80s when Los Angeles became the single most probably prominent radio station in the United States. And then a couple of years later, we did WFAN, which was the first all-sports station in, in the country, and that got a lot of notoriety. And then we did the first hip-hop station, so we got a lot of notoriety. And then the baseball experience, and then, you know, we went public. So early on, people said, hey, can you help out with this or be involved with that? And so it sort of came, I think, as the company grew. Has there been a particular area where you have focused your civic involvement and leadership and philanthropy? I mean, you mentioned Al Hubbard uh, yeah. a little bit ago. He is obviously someone, along with like Fred Klipsch, would right. be another person who have really focused on educational philanthropy and yeah. policy. I've done a number of different things. There probably hasn't been one passion. I've always said I probably, till I get to near the end of my career and I can really devote time, the one thing I'm probably proudest of is involvement with CICP. Um, CICP has been, I it's was a central a Indiana corporate partnership and CICP was founded really, um, because of the impetus of the Lilly endowment and, and Lilly corporation to bring the CEOs of the major employers together. That's now 20 years ago. Uh, and I guess I was the second chairman of the group. Um, but I, to see it, you know, and the idea was we have the, the, the responsibility of providing a long-term vision for the growth of this region because you really can't depend on elected officials because they live in two-year and four-year election cycles. And since most of us help fund their campaigns, uh, we ought to be the guys who are saying, here's where we want to go. And they've done a remarkable job. I mean, you look at the tech sector, you look at bio crossroads, you look at en the energy sector and logistics and, uh, and now, you know, advanced manufacturing and all of those things started because there was a vision. Again, I give an awful lot of credit to Clay and everybody at the endowment. Uh, Clay Robbins. Clay Robbins. Um, I've always said that without the endowment, Indianapolis is probably Peoria. Um, but it, they've done a remarkable yeah. job, uh, and they've and they've been major in in sort of watching all the initiatives of CICP. So I think that's been the thing that that has, you know and we've been involved in so many 
charities and so many capital campaigns and, and drives. But, but that's the one when I step back at a 50,000 foot level and say that that's probably the one where I'm proudest, even though, you know, I've been on the executive committee, you know, that to, to see it. And, and again, that's, they've had extraordinary leaders. They had Dave Goodrich and Mark Miles and now David Johnson. And going back to your comment about radio stations uh, as as you and I have discussed many times, the daughter of one of your prime business partners, yep. uh, Dr. Jim Riggs, his daughter, Dina, and I graduated from Howell High School together yes. in 1986. Yes. And I remember her in class with her notebook and books with all these radio stickers. Bumper stickers, yeah. KC, I still remember Casey, that one. yep, absolutely. Out of St. Louis, I think. Yeah. To the extent that timing is everything. How much did timing help you when it came to growing your business and the popularity of your brand and your offerings because of the music scene in the early to mid to late 80s? Well, I always say timing's everything. Um, show me a successful person. I'll show you somebody who hopefully works hard and maybe is you know fairly intelligent. But luck has a tremendous amount of, uh, uh, you know, of, of reason. I mean, a tremendous reason why anybody's successful. Radio w was great then. And by the way, Jim Riggs, I should probably tell you how I started with Jim Riggs. That was my next it. question. Well, we, the first radio station we ran, uh, was WNTS and our midday talk guy was David Letterman. And the knock on David was, well, this is supposed to be serious talk about the issues. And David didn't know anything about the issues. <laughs> David, David was just funny and he was brilliant. And some of his stuff from day one was incredible. Somebody said, you need somebody, you need to get somebody with some substance to at least have talk shows that could talk about the issues. So one of my dear friends who's since passed away many, many years ago was helping out when we started. And I said, you know, go to one of the campuses and find a professor maybe a political science professor who can, who could talk about this stuff. So he came in, he said, I found the guy. This guy's name is Jim Riggs, political science professor at Indiana Central then. Right. Now University of Indianapolis. Well, Jim came in, did a talk show. He was great. We became very, very, very dear friends. Um, and then Jim also did research. And so as Emma started, um, you know, we weren't doing talk shows anymore, but Jim was a wizard at research. And Jim really is the one who created the, the coalition that built Power 106 in Los Angeles. Jim came in one day and said, here's where the population of Southern California is going to go. And these are the emerging coalitions. And we built a radio station around it. And uh, uh, people, you know, it's been so long ago, people don't remember. But that became really singularly, singularly the most popular station in the United States for a number of years. Well, while he was busy working for you, he was busy feeding me. Okay. There in Irvington. Yeah. So he's the patriarch of a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful family. Wonderful people. And and uh, it, it's it's safe to say that uh, Dr. Riggs is not a Republican. Nope, nope. And uh, in the halcyon days of the 1980s, yeah. when I was um, a confirmed Reaganite, which I still am, but at the time, perhaps uh, maybe with the uh, teenage exuberance, yeah. he would drill me on the issues and and i would get the answers wrong yep and he'd just shake his head said, well what <laughs> can i do with you well, <laughs> you're hopeless i think is what he was saying yeah but he um wonderful man and um just uh we you know just a very good guy you are listening to leaders and legends a podcast presented by veteran strategies a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by girl scouts of central indiana Indianapolis-based Michelis Corporation, the Crown Plaza Hotel and Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. We all get older, for better or worse. You are incredibly youthful, since I know exactly how old you are. <laughs> well, you, I laugh. You talk about 50th reunion. We had a 50th USC reunion about a month ago, and it was so much fun. But seeing people 50 years later was hilarious. Well, the reason that I, <laughs> the reason I bring this up is because the kid just turned 50. Yeah. Ken Griffey Jr. Yeah. 
and you were the owner yeah. of the Seattle Mariners for a while, and especially as it really started to take off yeah. as a city, and, and it intertwined, I believe, with his yeah. emergence. Talk a little bit about the drive to own a professional sports team, what that was like, and especially in a place like Seattle. Well, that's funny. I, I went to Seattle as a kid and thought it was a great place. Just loved it. I uh, thought it was one of the, I still think it's the prettiest city in the United States. Um, but we had started WFAN and, and because we were partners with the New York Mets, we carried their games. Uh, we got to know a lot of the people in major league baseball. We were sort of the turnaround guys. Um, so we always bought radio stations and created a format and more often than not, the format worked and one thing led, led to another and in those days, you could only own one FM station in the top markets. We really didn't. WFM was our only AM station. Um, and because the theory was music is going to transition to FM much better than AM. And I won't bore you with all that. But we did WFAN. And they're really, in, in those days, I think we had bought the NBC stations. So we were in, in, we were in Indianapolis, Chicago, Washington, Boston, New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Houston, um, and there really wasn't much in the top 10 to buy. And we, you know, once you're in the big markets, you're not probably dying to go to a small town. Um, and I had had a theory about sort of television and mass media and sports, uh, that was that it would regionalize with cable. And we thought, boy, you're going to have the whole Pacific Northwest. It would be great. I love Seattle. Uh, the theory was a great idea. It was a great theory. It was 10 years before its time. Uh, one of my board members says you're always ten years before your time, so that's why you're <laughs> close. You've been closer to bankruptcy than monumental success. Uh, but I love Seattle, and and Junior was my favorite part. I mean, when we got there, I mean, it was the most unloved franchise in the history of the world. I mean, I could tell you stories that were hilarious. Um, nobody cared. Um, they had almost they won the game. They won the franchise by litigating with the American League. Uh, they won a lawsuit, so they got the franchise when, when they expanded Toronto and then Seattle. Um, so wasn't there like a Seattle Pilots? Well, that's why they that's why they got the team, because the baseball went to Seattle in 66 or 67. Pilots are there one year. Uh, if you talk to Major League Baseball, they say Seattle made certain commitments and they didn't live up to it. And if you talk to people in Seattle, they say, well, that's not necessarily true. But baseball was very, very upset with Seattle. And they pulled a franchise. And a little known fact is that apparently during the discussion to pull the franchise, they recorded some very derogatory things about Seattle that would have been very embarrassing. And lo and behold, a number of years later, Slade Gorton got the recording. Slade was county attorney then. He became a U.S. Senator. Senator, yeah. Senator. And Slade Gorton got the recording and basically went to baseball and said, I can either release this. I've heard this story. I don't know if it's true, but I can either release this recording or you can give us the next expansion team. Um, and baseball said, okay, you get the expansion team. Uh, but it was always a contentious relationship. Uh, most of the people in baseball thought, these guys are marketing guys. If they can't make it work, it'll never survive. Um, nobody, I think I, my last, I always say my first few years in Seattle, I was the biggest hero of all time. And my last six months in Seattle, I was the biggest pariah who ever lived. Uh, cause I think we <laughs> said the owner of the supersonics. Well, that's right. And you, and you've had it, there's been a history in Seattle. Uh, but, and it's funny cause I talked to the guy who bought the supersonics and he said, he started telling me all the things that happened to him. I said, well, those exact same things that happened to us, you know, 15 years earlier. But it's a beautiful place. I always said I'd love to do anything in Seattle but own their baseball team. <laughs> My um, brother was stationed at Fort Lewis. Yeah, it's a beautiful place. He stayed there. Yeah, he beautiful. never came. He never came back to Indianapolis. He it, absolutely loves it. It's a beautiful place. I always also got in trouble because I said Seattle's all the people I ever vote for get elected, and it makes it impossible for a business <laughs> like Major League Baseball. I, I said if we had these problems in Indianapolis. The corporate community and the government and the ball club would get together and share the numbers and figure out the problem and solve it. But in Seattle, it was, look, you know, we got beautiful mountains. We get people coming in every day. We really don't care about this stuff. And, uh, but I loved it. I loved the, I made a lot of great friends in baseball, uh, great friends in Seattle. And watching Junior play every day was the one thing I really loved. Would you have done anything differently? I mean, is it, is it what, I mean, a hindsight is never anyone's friend per se. We, but 
No. My my closest friend in the world was the president of the team. Uh, he then, when we, we sold it, he became general counsel. He's now semi-retired. And the day we sold it, he said, what could we have done differently? I said, nothing. I said, number one, you do your best work in an impossible situation. Um, the marketing that we had was the really became really the the forerunner of marketing for sports everywhere. I mean, I go to a Pacer game and you see all these things they do. We did that when nobody ever heard of it. I mean, we joked that that if you own the Red Sox or the Yankees, your campaign, your ad campaign was it's another you know season starts mm-hmm. April fourth. Get your tickets. When Seattle, it was like, hey, these guys, you know, we know they've always sucked, but you know, now <laughs> it's different. I never heard of the Seattle Mariners until you bought them, and we and we really created a great campaign around them and won all sorts of awards for marketing. Did things in the things in the ballpark which were more fun. Um, we, I mean, we did all sorts of crazy. We had date nights, we had concerts, we had, we had all, I mean, I could bore you forever with it. Um, but just try to make it a fun experience and attendance went, you know, great. The problem was we didn't have the money to sustain the losses that you needed in a team like that. I used to joke and said, you need to be a billionaire to own the Kansas city Royals or the Seattle Mariners. If you've got a paper route, you can own the Yankees or the Dodgers. Oh, that's, the, that, yeah, yeah, agreed. We had no cable TV deal and, and no, no real corporate sport. I, one of my favorite stories, and I'm going to stop talking baseball, but early on I went to, when you're in the game, you see all the revenue streams. And the Sky Dome was a new stadium, and mm-hmm. Paul Beeston, who ran the team, walked me around the ballpark and showed it to me. Sky Dome in Toronto. In Toronto, yeah. And you just you marvel when you, when you play in the King Dome, which, mm-hmm. where the roof's falling down and they haven't done maintenance. Uh, you marvel, and at the end of the tour, I see this giant ad for Microsoft on a Diamond Vision that, you know, the, the, the scoreboard in, in those days was the eighth wonder of the world. That's right. It was sort of the forerunner to what they did in Dallas with the, the stadium. And it was like a two-minute ad for Microsoft. And I said, Paul, how much do they pay you? And he came back, called downstairs, and said, they pay us about $385,000 a year for all their all the stuff they do with the team. And I marveled. So I called Gary, the guy I just talked about. And so Gary, he was back in Seattle. I said, how much does Microsoft spend with us? So Which is back, headquartered in. Headquartered eight miles away from the ballpark. <laughs> and he said, well, they buy four tickets and they have computer hacker night. They spend $14,000 a year with us. And I just said, well, there's my problem. I mean, but the game didn't matter. And it didn't matter till after we left and they had that one winning season where they beat the Yankees and they got a new stadium and the city fell in love with the team. But you needed the year to they win. won 114 games. Well, that was later. But that, that, was that later the year they beat the Yankees in the playoff and they went to the they never made the World Series. They made the American League Championship. But <coughs> excuse me, but that that playoff turned it around. Now they've since had a lot of downs and the attendance is still not so good. But uh, but it's a tough town, great town, but tough town. You mentioned uh, WFAN New yep. York. What do you think, decades later, of the child you gave birth to, sports talk radio? Well, you know, it's funny. That was one of the few things in the company that I actually did because it was an idea I had when I was not paying attention in a telecom class at USC. <laughs> and I would never get with, with Steve Crane, and we, and we never had AM stations, and, and WHN was the first one. And it was the largest country music station in America – that had the, and but also had the Mets. It was owned by the Doubleday family that owned oh, the yeah. Mets, and that's who we bought the stations from. We did the deal because we wanted their FM in Washington and their FM in New York, but we had to take the AM. And I laugh, it was the largest country music station in America, but it was like 25th in the ratings. And we said, look, this is, <laughs> you're never going to make money playing music on AM anymore. So I, I said, look, if I was ever going to do this stupid idea, this is it. Because you're not going to be all news because you have WINS and WCBS and WOR and WABC did talk. So if you want spoken word, here it is. And uh, so I said, let's do all sports because we've got 162 Mets games. So you're going to get a lot of people listening. And I'll never forget, I took it to Rick Cummings and Doyle Rose, who was then our president of our radio group. And we went to a manager's meeting and it got voted down. You're kidding. No, got voted down, and Steve Crane came to me and said, well, what do you want to do? I said, you can't lead where others won't follow, so we're not doing it. And the next day, Rick and Doyle came into my office, and they said, look, we still think it's a stupid idea. 
But you know what? We owe you one. This is your baby. Let's do it. And we did it. And you have to know our culture at Emmis, where there's just nonstop needling. And so Jim Lampley, who was one of our first guys on oh, the sure. air, used to call WFAN in the first year or so uh, the Vietnam War of Emmis. <laughs> and and were, it, you, they, were you Ho Chi Minh? <laughs> yeah, it was, no. I, unfortunately, I was General Westmoreland. I was on the side that didn't win. And um, and you know, around here it'd be five o'clock, and somebody say, "Well, it's five o'clock. Uh, we lost another twenty three thousand dollars at WFAN today." I mean, it was that kind of needling. <laughs> and Jim Riggs, the aforementioned Jim Riggs, would do research, and I'll never forget. After about six months on the year, the question was, "How did we do as the place to go for sports?" And in the first six months, it was probably WINS and WCBS who had sports on the 15s and 45s. Still probably had an 80% preference as the place for sports. And about a year and a half later, it had flipped. So we became the place for sports. Um, but when it really took off is when we bought the ABC, the NBC stations in 1988. And we merged. In those days, you couldn't have two FMs or two AMs. So the better signal was 660, which was WNBC. Hmm. So we switched WFAN to 660, and we took Don Imus, who was their morning guy. And it all came together. And I, I always say, Robert, the line between being a genius and an idiot is very fine. And I've been on both sides many times. So I went from being the world's biggest idiot on WFAN to the biggest genius. <laughs> the, the one funny part about the story, and, and I always, you know, people say, oh, you had the vision to see it. Somebody was going to do this format. I mean, it just happened to be me, and it happened to be in New York City where it got a lot of attention, and there's always retrospectives on it. And every year a guy's writing another book, and he calls me to talk about it. Um, but today um, I, I always think back of one favorite story sports radio really changed the landscape of sports because if you're a player or an owner or a manager you get up in the morning and if you've had a bad day you see a, a devastating column or somebody's ripped you in the newspaper but then you put the newspaper down and you get on with your day well with sports talk radio if you've made a mistake i mean i, I go down the hall i promise you that today, all day, we're talking about T.Y. Hilton dropping two passes, mm -hmm. you know, or when Adam Vinatieri missed kicked. So it's just nonstop. And one of my dearest friends, who should remain nameless, who owned another team and still does and actually owns several teams, um, was in Seattle. And he gets in a car and he's going across the bridge. And he said, I'm not a religious man. But the fact that the guy who invented this format that has made all of our lives miserable as team owners and managers <laughs> now owns a team and is getting ripped by the local sports talk station proves to me that there's a God. It was one of my favorite quotes of all time. And it's true, you know, but, uh, but that's life, but it, but it, it, it changed a lot. Um, we always knew that the sports is the American opiate um, and people care passionately and they will debate it endlessly. And it's been fun. Have you ever called into one of your own stations? Once in a while for fun. Or if they'll say something where I have particular knowledge, I'll call very rarely. And identify yourself or oh, are you yeah. a mystery yeah, caller? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I don't know. I never want to be a mystery caller. But if they're talking about something and I'll say, hey, guys, it's Jeff. I'm listening. But that only happens once every year or two or, or less. If you had to uh, be stranded on a desert island with either Don Imus or Howard Stern or Rush Limbaugh, whom would you choose? It's a great question. I know all of them a little bit. Uh, Imus, obviously, more. My friend Randy Bongarten, who ran the fan, uh, if you read Howard Stern's first book, he is like the only executive that Stern loved. Um, and I had some moments with Don where he got into a battle with the Tisch family that owned the Giants. Mm -hmm. And when I was owning the Mariners and um, the Tishes, Don did something on the air um, and the Tishes called their lawyers in Washington and said, we want to go after their license. Uh, and the guy said, well, look, the, the guy who owns it's a really good friend of mine. Let me call him. And he said, Don's done this. And I, I won't get into the story of what he did on the air, but the Tishes were, they were new into sports ownership. And here's a very prominent family that, owned CBS and owned, you know, but they never owned a sports team and they didn't understand, you, you know, you can do anything, but once you own a sports team, you you got a target on your back. And I, and I said, look, I'll call Don 
and see if he'll, you know, sort of lay off of this issue because he was making fun of the Tishes for something. Um, and I said, but 50-50, I said, Don is notorious for if I call him, it's 50% chance that he'll say, can you believe that Tish has called Smullyan? And I must always talk about me. I'll never forget ball, Tom or um, Paul Newman came to the ballpark one night. And the Paul Newman. The Paul Newman came to the ballpark one night. He lived in Connecticut. He said, I know all about you. I know about your love life because I listen to Imus every morning. Imus would talk <laughs> about my life all the time. Um, but but that was that was Don, and I called him, and he did back off. But uh, Randy Bongarten managed both of them, Imus and Stern. And I said, what was the difference? He said, Imus is just Imus, and he's really not manageable because Don just does what he wants. And the Don you get, you know, at eight a.m. in the morning is the same Don as you get at five in the afternoon. He's just kind of a cantankerous guy. I always liked him, got along with him, but he said Howard is the most disciplined guy in the world. Howard will say something at eight in the morning and at 10, you'll talk to him about it and he'll say, yeah, we did this and this and this very clinical, but he said, he's just a consummate professional. And, and really he liked working with Howard much better. Uh, Forgive me, I guess, but I thought in his prime, Howard Stern was one of the funniest people in the country and absolutely brilliant. And, and I, listen, I have to confess I'm not, a, I'm not a Howard listener and I've got friends who are and, you know, and I know how brilliant he is and I, I don't know him well, but, um, um, and I've known Limbaugh and obviously Limbaugh's politics aren't mine, but we've kidded about that. Um, but I think all these people just have a rare talent to connect to human beings. Well, and well, let me ask you about another, another radio, um, empire. Yeah. And that's Bob and Tom. Yeah who I remember when they kind of first came here and yep. they were the uh, counterpart to what was happening at WNAP at the time. Wacker yep. and Willack, I think right. was oh, the yeah. name. Yep. And uh, what do you think is Bob and Tom's impact, not only on local radio, but national? Well, and by the way, it, I've been a fan of those guys forever. Um, I think Tom Griswold's one of the most creative human beings of all time. We thought we had him hired once, uh, steal him away. Uh, and, uh, that's another long story, but, uh, I, I, obviously they rewrote the record book here. Um, just very talented people. Very, very talented. I, I think, uh, both of them, but especially Tom, Tom has always just been this creative genius. And that's what I hear about him. That yeah, he's he the driving. Yeah, it, Tom is always a creative. Was always a creative genius. I think Bob was sort of along for the ride. Funny guy, mm-hmm. talented guy. But but I think you know. And I I didn't work in studio with him. But people who know him said, look, Tom was the guy who created all this, or most of it. Um, Some of the folks we've mentioned are envelope pushers, which as a East Side IPS kid, yeah, I like envelope pushers. Do you get the sense when too far is too far? Oh yeah, yeah. And and who gets to? I mean, besides their bosses. Yeah. But is it is it the culture or the politics of a society or a particular market that gets to decide when too much is too much? Well, we've changed so much. Um, I mean, it's hard to believe how far we've come. I mean, look at our political discourse. I mean, just turn on the news every day. Look at our, you know, contemporary entertainment. You know, it's hard to believe that the country was shocked when, you know, Clark Gable said, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn uh, in 1939. I can still remember debating with David Letterman in 1974 that you couldn't say pud on the air. You know, I'm still not sure what pud is, but he said, oh, that guy's a pud. Well, I don't think you can say pud. Um, You know, and and I've seen, you know, all of it. We live in, in, I mean the rules are different. The, you know, the standards are different. We've gone through different iterations where the FCC was giving, and we still, you know, on obscenity, you know, I mean, we've, we've really cut back, but just the standards of the country are so much different. You've mentioned, and I've mentioned uh, Rush Limbaugh a few times and, and I don't believe it's going too far to say that a lot of us who are conservatives and Republicans yeah. are in your debt, mm-hmm. Mr. Smolian, for the conservative 
radio programming you not only have now, but have had on yeah. your stations for a long time. Yeah. Uh, you just mentioned that, that Rush Limbaugh's politics isn't necessarily yours. Right. But why do you th- think, as, as an owner, as someone yeah. whose bottom line yeah. is involved, mm-hmm. and as a, a well-known um, Democrat uh, loyalist yeah. and fundraiser, that it's important to have Tony Katz, Rob Kendall, Rush yeah. Limbaugh, Greg Garrison, those folks well, on your stations. I, I'm a big believer in the First Amendment. Uh, I am a fanatical believer in the First Amendment. You know, there's the there's the old line the star used to run. Uh, you know, from Helvetius, I think it was. I, uh, I you know I I disagree with everything you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. Uh, that's sort of a core value with me. Um, I I will tell you I worry that the rise of all of these segments, I'm I'm not sure sociologists are going to tell us where we are, but I I worry that, you know, AM radio is sort of the province of conservatism. And now it's, now it's commercial radio, NPR. uh, And when the people who started Air America came to me and said, we want to do a a liberal radio network. And we even helped them evaluate it. But I said, I just don't think there's a market. I think moderates and progressives who like radio or listen to rock and roll. Uh, and I think if they like politics, it was an NPR. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I think commercial radio really is just populated by more conservative people. Um, the thing that scares me is that it's led to sort of these cocoons. If you believe what Rush Limbaugh says, it is impossible to believe what Rachel Maddow says and vice versa. Uh, and I go back to where we were a while ago when I said there was a time, and, and, I, and I think when, when a Bobby Kennedy or a Birch Bayh could sit down with an Everett Dirksen or, um, you know, a, a, you know a, a Ronald Reagan or, you know, the old Ronald Reagan Tip O'Neill and hammer out solutions. And I just am afraid we can't even talk about solutions anymore. Uh, and that scares me. We, you know, I do worry about what the bubbles are. There's a bubble on the left. There's a bubble on the right. People are pulled in one direction or the other. And I don't know how we solve common problems. We've succeeded here because... I was just getting ready to make that point. Yeah, we've succeeded here because nobody cared if you were a Republican or a Democrat. What was the problem in the city? How do we fix it? Um, and it, it and it scares me on a national level that it's almost impossible. If You know, my friend Evan Bai, I asked him what the difference was. He said, when I grew up, he said, my dad's, some of his closest friends were Republicans in the United States Senate. He said, now, if a Democrat sees a Republican or shakes hands with a Republican, it's a campaign ad. Mm-hmm. You know, Dick Luger, who was a man I really admired, you know, his career may have ended in the primary because there was a picture of him shaking hands with Barack Obama, who was the president of the United States. That kind of thing is just, you know. I mean, I shake hands most, like I said, most of my friends are Republicans. You know, I would hard, you know, it'd be a little strange that my career would end or their career would end because they were at dinner with me. Um, well, you could have told me no yeah, well, I to could coming have. on the podcast. I, I certainly know you're a Republican. No, I mean, so I worry that we are, you know, we live in a time where if you listen to Tony or Rush or Rachel Maddow or you know, uh, I don't know, uh, whoever, um, that um, you really can't, you you just don't get information from a different point of view. And when you watch the impeachment hearings, I mean, you, you really have two mm-hmm. different worlds. You have people who say this is an absolute travesty and it's, a, you know, and it's a, it's a um, you know, it's a crime. And you have people say, what are you talking about? Why aren't we investigating Joe Biden, um, different worlds. You mentioned Indianapolis, and one of the things that um, my good friend, who recently deceased, but certainly on the Mount Rushmore of founding fathers of yep. modern Indianapolis, P.E. McAllister, right. who was head of the Capital Improvement Board for a long, long time, yeah. um, and all the other things that he did, which are probably too long to mention in the remaining minutes of this podcast, he said never at one time in the and he was primarily 70s and 80s yeah. uh, maybe early 90s because he's born in 1918 so he was yeah. retiring he said never one time in a meeting about the city right. did anyone ask who was going to get the credit right. did anyone say 
that's a Republican or a Democrat idea. Yeah, absolutely right. He said there was never any argument. Yeah. It was a discussion. Right. And everyone pulled together. Yeah. And I, perhaps the best example of this, of many in the last 50 years of this city, is the Super Bowl yeah. in February of 2012. Yeah. If I had told you when you had come back from Los Angeles yeah. after graduating that, you know what, in your lifetime, in your near lifetime, Indianapolis, Indiana is going to completely rewrite the expectation of the Super Bowl yeah. for this country and for the NFL. What would your response have been? Was it was the year nineteen seventy three two? Was that what was the year that you asked the question? When I would have the thought, I guess when, it really didn't matter. When you came out of USC and you're yeah, back to Indianapolis yeah, and you're yeah. thinking, "Oh my God, do I want to stay here?" Maybe on a good day, a billion to one. You know, I mean, and, <laughs> but it, but it was a perfect example. And I and I had friends in the NFL and people all over. I, one of my favorite things is when people come into Indianapolis from out of town and they go, "Oh my gosh, this is such a great place." Um, but that was a perfect example. Everybody came together. I was on that committee. Uh, my dear friend, Jack Swarbrick, I'll never forget when we, we bid the year before and we were in Nashville and I'll never forget. He came in and said, Jerry Jones just offered him another 50 or 60 suites and another 20,000 seats. And that's $3 million a team and we're going to lose. And we only lost by one vote, but they basically said, but come back next year. And they gave it to us. Um, but the job that was done, I mean, you know, Allison, you know, remarkable Mark, but, but really Mel Raines. Yeah. All those Susan people. Boffman. Yeah. But all those people, but really it, it's all the volunteers, you know, I mean, I'll never forget. This was the, I think the second in command at the NFL. And, and I said, how are we doing? You know? And he said, Oh my God, you guys are unbelievable. And I said, well, my, and I know what it was. I saw, I guess I saw Roger Goodell at a meeting uh, a month before the Super Bowl, and it was in New York. And I, and I said, how are we doing? He said, doing great. And I said, well, let me promise you this. If a flake of snow drops anywhere east of Peoria, <laughs> we will have it picked up before it hits the ground. I said, that's just, you know, it, and, and the organization and the commitment and the passion of the people. And that's was, been a recurring theme of the podcast yep. is you talk to people who have put on these huge events yep. or been involved. Mark Miles said it. Yep. Greg Ballard said it. Michael Browning said it. Ryan Vaughn has said it. All the people who've appeared on the Leaders and Legends podcast, and they all say the volunteer community in Indianapolis is second to none. It is. It is. And and they make everybody look good because they care. I mean, these are people who are just, you know, doing it because they love the city and they want to be good hosts. And But that's a spirit, spirit that permeates. I, I would say that... You know, from a civic index, there must be such thing. We're off the charts. Uh, one of my proudest things was seeing that the Brookings Institution mm -hmm. did a study on the new localism. Uh, and the, the premise was it looks like for a while the federal governments are going to be, not only here but all the world, are going to be more dysfunctional because of all of this, uh, you know, polarization. But they said, so we look to local you know, entities that really have made a difference. And they came up three in the world. One was Pittsburgh, one was Copenhagen and Indianapolis. And it was just the public private partnership and with CICP and the endowment and the things that had done it, to see that as one of the three great places in the world where this kind of involvement occurs. Very, very, very gratifying. Glad you stayed. I, I had no, no regrets. I never, never regretted being here for a moment. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Indianapolis-based Michelis Corporation, the Crown Plaza Hotel and Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. We end the podcast with the same five questions to everybody. Okay. You ready? I'm ready. What was your first job? Copy boy, Indianapolis Times, 1963. Is that where you worked with uh, Bill Benner? No. That, was that, was, later? that was later. Benner and Robin Miller, later. 
and and I want the record to show that I had seniority. I was a, I believe it was after my freshman year in college, and they were score boys, um, and they were like in high school, and I was a summer whatever I was lackey, um, and so that what that meant was that when we had to when we had to go to the soft ice cream truck outside the building, I had seniority, and you know they had to go before I did. Was the <laughs> we did a podcast with Bill Benner and he mentioned the fact that you guys had worked together. We worked together at the, the Indianapolis Star. I worked there three summers and loved it. That was my, that was my second job. But my first job was, well, actually I think I had a couple more in high school, but first job was a copy boy for the old Indianapolis times. And I worked for the legendary Irving Leibowitz, who uh, that's a name that goes way in the past. Uh, but he was the managing editor of the times and probably the quintessential newspaper man. It was amazing. Those these sort of relationships, like you mentioned, working with, um, or Bill Benner mentioned working with you. One of the reasons we do the podcast is these fun little facts yeah. and coincidences. Yeah. Second question: What was your first concert? Well, I think I think my first concert. It's funny because somebody asked me that recently. I want to say it was like not a Motown review, but a pre-Motown review where you had like Jackie Wilson and people like that, and it was at the old Indiana Theater, and this, I was probably 15, 14 years old, uh, but that was pre-Motown, and I, 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 I want to say Jackie Wilson. I should remember that more. I can still remember sitting at the very top with a few <laughs> friends, so that was, that was probably when I was 14 years old. If you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you choose? You know, it's funny. Uh, there's so many. I'm a big Tom Friedman fan. Um, one of my favorite books from 30 years ago was Listening to America by Bill Moyers. Mm. Uh, just went around the country and listened to how the thoughts and hopes of, of everyday Americans. Um, I read one by Stephen Brill last year um, that I absolutely loved. Um, my gosh, I'm losing my mind. Um, Tailspin. And I think I've sort of become a student of the economic system. And I gave a speech to the United Way on income distribution. And I really believe it's a problem that we don't solve. And we don't all come together to solve it. It's going to do us in. If you look at throughout the sweep of history, when societies with the gap between rich and poor become so large, you that's how you get revolutions uh and i'm not saying we have a revolution but it's something that manifests itself and this is a country of such abundance and you know we ought to be able to solve the problem so that's louis the 16th cost him his head well that's and that that is the that is the that is the lesson throughout history and we sort of think well it can't happen here but when people get angry enough people and hungry enough and hungry enough that's right if you could witness any event in history, be there in person as it happens, which event would you choose? Boy, that's a great question. I, I have such a fanatical love of sort of the you know the founders of this country, the Declaration of Independence. Uh, I've also said I would love to have witnessed the rise of of, of Nazism in Germany. To understand, I mean, to me, and being an American Jew, and mm -hmm. you know, only through the grace of God did my family come over here fifty years before all that happened. But to see that, to understand it, uh, um, it would would have been, you know, I, I read in the Garden of the the, the Beast, which is mm -hmm. the book about the American ambassador who was in who was in Berlin uh, in the mid thirties, who lived through it, and just a remarkable time. And you've had dinner with some amazing people. I remember reading, I think, uh, once or twice, yeah. your close friendship with President Clinton. Knew President Clinton fairly well. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours off the record, whom would you choose? Not Abdul. Not Abdul. Not Tony Katz. Not <laughs> Boy, that's a great question. Not JMV. That's a great question. Um because I imagine you've had some pretty remarkable. Had some we pretty, asked this yeah. question of Mark Miles, yeah. and he started talking about the people he did have dinner with, yeah. Nelson Mandela and other yeah. people like that, and you're just in awe. Yeah, and I'm trying to think who, you know, uh, I, I, you know, I'd say Barack Obama. I'm a Democrat. I, th I think history will treat Barack Obama very well, uh, and he's a brilliant man. Um I was in baseball with George Bush. I love George. George, one of my favorite people of all time. Um, 
Well, that's know, right. You would have been owners at the same uh, we time. Were, we used to sit in the back of the room and crack jokes. Texas Rangers. Uh, and I, so I've known George, loved George. Um, didn't know Barack Obama that well, but I thought he was, I thought he came in at a time where, you, you know, he was, I thought he did, he did a, I think history will treat him fairly well. So I, I, I'm not really thinking about politicians, uh, but, but, I'm, you know, I guess, I guess Thomas Friedman. And I've actually sat with Thomas Friedman at a dinner. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I find Thomas Friedman's take on the world to be pretty remarkable. This city in the last 50 years, and hopefully for the next 50 years, is really, uh, besides the neighborhood by neighborhood, community by community, mm-hmm. uh, sense of brotherhood, the city has changed because of a lot of the podcast guests we've had so far on Leaders and Legends, Jeff Smolian is in the top rank of those people, not only because of his kindness and generosity and philanthropy, but as you have just heard for the last hour, his personality and his sense of spirit and his commitment to Indianapolis. We cannot thank you enough, sir, for your time. It's been fun. I can't believe we spent an hour. It went by, you know, it it was a lot of fun, Robert. Thank you. Pleasure. Pleasure. Thanks. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. 